Well, unless you've been living uh, in a cave for the last 30 years, I think you'd agree that there has been this information explosion from the byte to the megabyte uh, to the gigabyte and the Jebusite and every other site that you can have. There has been an explosion in information. Now, sadly, there has not been correspondingly an explosion in wisdom, in wisdom. There hasn't been that same explosion. Our lives are still troubled and trialed over the same issues. And so I'm thankful that we have this book of Proverbs that we've been studying all summer because it's a book of God's wisdom for God's people to live in a way that honors God, but in a world that doesn't honor God. This is a, it's a book that is leading us to live a good life, not, not by the talents we have or the things we acquire or the accomplishments that we make, but in Proverbs, a good life is a skillfully lived life, that you're living life well. In very practical terms, as you've considered all the things that we've studied, that means that, that you're, you're reconciling your conflict. Your words are being used to build up so that friendships are strengthened. That when you work, you work for the glory of God. There's satisfaction in using his gifts for the betterment of others. Your sexuality is handled in biblical faithfulness. This is a skillfully lived life. And as we've looked over, or as we've looked over the summer, we've looked at individual topics. Well, today I want to kind of take a 10,000-foot view. I want to step back and look at Proverbs as a whole, because really Proverbs as a whole looks at helping us live life in terms of the destination that we're, that we're heading toward. So in Proverbs, you have this, 70 times in Proverbs, you have this call to avoid the road of, of folly that leads to death, and to pursue the road of wisdom that moves towards life. Choosing a path is choosing a destination. So we better choose wisely. When you look at your life, where is it heading? When you see the marks of your life, where is it going? Where is it? It's really a matter of life and death. It really comes down to that. Because choosing a path is choosing a destination. Let me read to you out of chapter 8, and we're going to be doing the same thing this week that we have all summer, which is bouncing around Proverbs. It's the nature of the book. And I'll post all these references online so that you don't have to worry about making sure you get them all down so you can just hear them and be affected by them. So this is in chapter 835, and this is kind of setting before us these two paths, one of folly that leads to death, one of wisdom that leads to life. And so in chapter 8, and this is wisdom talking now. So wisdom is being personified. So it's speaking as a person. It says, whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. This is wisdom speaking, the wisdom of God. He says, all who hate me love death. So two roads before. So you remember the context of Proverbs. It's kind of set in this situation of a father instructing a son. Son's probably 18, 19 years of age. He's about to go off into the world, and the father's giving him some wisdom. He's going to hit all the temptations and trials of this world, and so here's the wisdom. And he's going to put before him that path of folly and the path of wisdom. 
He, of course, is going to give two instructions that we'll look at today. One's going to be negative, avoid the path of, of ruin, and pursue the path of life. So let's start with the first one, avoiding this path of folly. Now, you understand that it leads towards death. So as a father instructing a son, I don't want my son to end up there, so the path is important. He says, avoid the path of death. Now, actually, it doesn't just lead to death. I want you to know that it is death. The path itself is called death. Now, in Proverbs, death isn't death in the clinical sense, the cessation of life, but death is in the kind of the, the deteriorating humanity that comes upon us when we live foolish lives. So God has built us to enjoy himself, to display his glory to the world, and, and, and what folly does is it dehumanizes us. It, it makes us less than what God would have us be. And so this father is instructing the son, saying, avoid this path of folly. In other words, this path of folly is going to make you less human. The examples that he gives, the names and the, and the type of uh, designations that he gives are like the scoffer and the, um, the scoffer, the mocker, the senseless, the gullible, the naive, the wicked, or the fool. These are the names given to the person on this road to death. And by the way, remember now, you're dying on the way to death. So this is speaking about a life that's dying well before the grave. And so that's the instruction the Father's giving. Now, he gives some examples of what this road of death looks like. And I, I want you to know, it may surprise you, it's not marked by murder and rape and adultery and crimes of passion. It, it's, it's much more nuanced than that. So the, the fool... The person that's walking on this road of death, it's issues that are much more nuanced. In fact, it's really a life, not in overt wickedness, but in careless living. Or as Proverbs would say, foolish living. Now, you, you must remember that the term fool isn't some accusation of stupidity. Uh, foolishness is really a moral designation for a person who lives without regard for God. They just live. I mean, they're nice people. They may believe in God. They may not. They don't have animosity towards God. They just live without regard for God. They don't consider his ways. Like Psalm 14, 1, it says, the fool says there is no God. So I make my decisions. I make my life in accordance with what's best for me. And I don't give consideration to God. So, so how would this look like? What would the marks of this road of death be? Well, it could be in terms of dealing with our anger, that I justify myself, I excuse myself, I explain myself, I don't repent and reconcile. The fool says, yeah, I'm, I'm right in the way that I feel this way, and so I must be right. And it slowly deteriorates the person's life. In fact, we read in Proverbs 28, or 29, 80, it says, scoffers or arguers set a city aflame. You know how it is. When a person really gets angry really fast, you see their face almost contort. It's like, it's like almost dehumanizing. It's like they're becoming a monster. They're not really human. That, that's, what, that's that slow deterioration of a person. Or not just anger or sexuality. If you don't walk in marital faithfulness and covenantal faithfulness, and you pretty much share yourself with a lot of people, th there's that deterioration. And it says in Proverbs 6, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. We've seen that. I, I mean, just the... <clears throat> The repeated misuse 
of the sexuality that God has given to you will contort your life in a deteriorating way, or your words. You know, we've been instructed that our words have the power. He says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. When you use your words in a way that build up and encourage and edify, there's health and there's life. But when you use your words to kill and to cut down and destroy, there's this deterioration. It's like a death. You're killing relationships by the misuse of words. That's the fool. Or not just that, but let's say contentment, that we can't find it. We're envious. We're always climbing the ladder. There's a certain degree of deterioration to our humanity. And we read this last week in Proverbs 14.30. says, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy or passion makes the bones rot. You know how it works. When you live in envy, when you're always living unsatisfied, you're always thirsty, you're always hungry, you never have that sense of joy, there's a deterioration of the image of God in you. And so that's what he's saying here. He's warning us, don't walk on the path of, life, on the path of death. When you walk on this path of death, what's going to happen is it's going to dehumanize you. It's going to destroy you. So it's not the overt actions. It's the more nuanced ones. It's the foolishness. It's living like God didn't matter to you. Remember, it's not hardened disbelief. It's just, I want to live the way I want to live. And the father's saying to the son, that will destroy you. That will destroy you. In fact, it ends up, this kind of living death ends up at a final death. Again, I'm not speaking about the cessation of life. A final death is when life is over and you're before God. In fact, we learn in chapter 11, 7, he says, when the wicked dies, his hope will perish. There is no hope. There's no turning back. There's no second chance. If you're on this road of death and then you actually die, then that's it. In fact, in Proverbs, it says, wisdom says this, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. So you can hear the pleadings of a father saying, don't get on this road. Don't get on this road. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't draw the parallel to the New Testament in terms of the nature of folly leading to death and the nature of sin leading to death. So you have, for example, in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. That if we walk in this folly, if we walk in this sin, it leads to death. So that's the path. We shouldn't be surprised at the destination. So, so if you're here today... And, and you're not a Christian. I'm glad you're here. But I think you would agree that this is really true to observation. You know, that, that the choices that we make form a narrative of life. You know it. You know, choices become habits, and habits become traits, and traits become character, and a character becomes a life. So when you look at your life, what are the choices that you're doing? How are they affecting your life? Are you on this road of death? And, and, and what, would, what do you think happens after death? I mean, death is that constant. And I would remind you that in a group this large, there will be many of us, or some of us, that may die very suddenly. I mean, death isn't always protracted. Death isn't always foretold. Sometimes it's very sudden. And so and I want to think about this today. I hope you're thankful, actually, that we want to talk about these issues. They're real, they're true, 
death often comes very quickly without giving you time to consider these things. So what do you think happens after death? Do you think you've lived life well? Is that what it is? Do, do, you, do you think it's going to go great because your life has been pretty strong? Or What do you think happens after? Do you think it's just your life? And it just Winston Churchill didn't believe in the resurrection. He believed that when life ended, it was like blown out a candle. That's it. It was all over. Is that the way you feel? Do you feel there's any responsibility that we have to God? Is there any accountability? A lot of people think, hey, it's my life. I get to live it the way I want. It's given to me. Is that true? Proverbs is understandable when God is seen as a creator. In fact, it says in chapter 5, 23, he says this. 21, excuse me. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all of his paths. Do you see? It says your ways and my ways are before God. His eyes ponder our paths. In that, there's an implicit assessment or accountability or judgment. It isn't something that's collaborative. We don't get with God and say, hey, let me explain what I was doing. God knows every act, and he knows every motivation of every act. He doesn't need any input into the process. His decisions are right, they're good, they're pure. There's that judgment before God. So if this road of death leads to this time before God, doesn't that cause you just to pause for a minute? I mean, if you knew, I, I gave this illustration a few weeks back. If you knew what would happen to the Titanic, would you have boarded? Would anybody have boarded the boat if they knew she would sink? Nobody in the right mind would get on that boat. But if we know that our life of living apart from God without regard from God ends up before God, doesn't that cause us to pause and just stop and consider? And if you're not a Christian, maybe you are convicted and you're like, yeah, I haven't lived my life without God. I haven't considered God. I've made decisions of marriage and getting jobs and living life, spending money, treating people. I have never given much thought to God. Would you now want to consider that? You know, the glorious thing about the scriptures is, is it's filled with warnings to kind of stop us and have us consider. And, and, and this is one. This is one such sermon. If you are convicted and you feel like, wow, I really haven't lived without regard for God, what do I do? If that is the end, if it's true that he's pondering my paths, I, I want you to know that God's very merciful. You know, all through scriptures, God is merciful. It says in 28.13, he says that he who conceals his sins will not prosper. In other words, we conceal our sins by shielding them from others or even from ourselves. But he says, he who confesses them will obtain mercy. You'll get mercy if you confess your sins. That's the invitation of God. God's very, and for us, on this side of the cross, we look back at the cross, that's a glorious picture of God's mercy. God is so merciful. When you see Jesus Christ and you understand the nature of the gospel, that God sees a people, they need to be saved, they can't save themselves. And so he sends his own son, and son comes, and he lives that perfect life, dies for our sins, and that by faith in Jesus, we're delivered from ourselves. I praise God that he delivered me from myself. 
That's the offer. It's an invitation. It's kindness. So if you're not a Christian here and you hear these words and you think it, you're convicted, I haven't lived, I think I am on the road of death. Well, this is, if you will, an exit ramp off that road. The confession of sin, the pleading with God for mercy in Christ. But let's say you're a Christian here, as most of you are. What do you do? Maybe you've been living this week or this past month or even you look back and you're like, yeah, I don't give God the time I think he really does deserve as my creator. So what do you do? Well, I would encourage you to do this. If you see that you're on the road to life, you are harboring anger, you are walking in misdeeds in terms of your own sexuality, you don't use your words in a way to build up, and all the examples I gave you, you're kind of finding yourself a bit guilty on, what do you do? Well, number one, let's just start practicing assessing ourselves. In other words, you want to assess your life. You want to take stock of where you are. Now, I know we don't do, what I'm speaking about here is, like in the morning you get up and you think, how did I walk yesterday? How did I handle my marriage? How did I handle my money? How did I handle my job? How did I handle my church relationships? In other words, you need to stop and think about what you've done with your life. Now, we're not good at that in Western culture. And the reason we're not good is because we're so busy, right? Well, no, no, we're not too busy. In fact, there's a survey done in the last 40 years within work environments that people in Western culture have had an increase of, of close to seven hours per week given to them due to modern conveniences. Now, seven hours per week, that's an hour a day. So if you lived 50 years ago, you'd have one less hour of free time a day. Now, I know that you may have filled in that free time, but the question is, with what? We don't do well with contemplation. We don't do well with meditation. I want to encourage you to think through your life. Are, do you see marks of the road of death in your life? Is there foolishness? Is there ignoring of God? Is there casual views of sin? Is there not fearing the Lord? And think about it and, and assess yourself. But, but don't do it in a vacuum. Don't just do it by yourself. I would encourage you to invite other people in. You know, in Proverbs 16, 25, he says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. So you don't want to do it in a vacuum. And this is the nature of the local church that I just love, that there are people here, when you're plugged in, you're known, they know you, you know them, you can invite people into your life, and it takes that. You invite them in. Scrutinize my life with me. Do you see these marks of death? Do you see a casualness? Do you see a foolery in my life? I mean, what do you see? Now, I don't want you to gather a bunch of yes men or yes women. Oh, you're doing great. I just love what you're doing. Invite people that will be candid with you. And you have to give them permission because we don't like it when people tell us our sins. Call me crazy, but that's, that's the way it is. We don't like it when people say, well, I think you did this wrong. Well, right away, we move right on the defensive or perhaps the offensive and tell them what they're doing wrong. And they're saying, well, I haven't invited you into my life yet. <laughs> well, sorry. But, but you need to invite someone in because we can deceive ourselves very easily. I can always find justification for my sin. I have no problem with that. The assessment is important. But I don't want, I don't want to just bring you to a place, if you see you're on this road of death, and you assess yourself and you find yourself wanting, I'm not looking to lead you into despair, but into delight. 
And so after you assess yourself, for the Christian here now, after you assess yourself, I would encourage you to run to the gospel. The run to the gospel. You're going to go and you're going to consider all of the great work that God has done for us in Christ. See, this is the reason why the Christian, and only the Christian, can be making honest appraisals of himself, because we have the gospel. In other words, the, the Christian can be told and can reveal and can discern that he has sinned in his life and he doesn't slip into despair or into insecurity or into defensiveness. Why? Because we have the gospel. What I mean by that is this, that the gospel teaches us that God has reconciled himself to us through the perfect work of Jesus. So God has placed a demand, be holy as I am holy. That's what he says. Well, that puts me out. But Jesus has come, and he's lived a perfect life, he's died for my sins, and he's been raised to life. So the merits of Christ, and when God saw the Son, and he said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, you pass in grade, A+. plus. His merits are now my merits. What I'm saying is that our acceptance with God is, is based upon Jesus being sinless, taking my sins so that I might be forgiven and adopted. This is why we can be honest with ourselves. And, and we can confess our sins. And we can repent of our sins. And we can run because of the gospel. It frees us to say, yeah, Tom, I am faltering all over the place here. And so we run to the gospel together. And we find ourselves becoming more human because we're walking back in the image of God that he has given to us. Have you done that this summer? As we've looked at the way we used our words, our sexuality, lust, we've talked about work, we've talked about money, we've talked about envy. When we've gone through those, have you repented? Have you found the gospel sufficient? Is forgiveness to cleanse you from all unrighteousness? I mean, that, that's the call. And that's really what the Father's doing. The Father's saying, Son, avoid this path of death. But if you get on it, Here's how to get off of it. Through the assessing of your soul and the confession of sin, that's part of the Christian walk, is faith and repentance, faith and repentance. Okay, that's not the only thing he says to his son, though. He also tells him on the positive side, he says, pursue the path of wisdom. Pursue the path of wisdom that leads to life. In fact, he says it in chapter 3, 22. He says this, My son... Do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and grace to your neck. In other words, when you and I begin to pursue this path of God's wisdom, then it leads to a greater life. It leads to a greater life. What do I mean by that? Well, it's a greater life both now and later, but it's also a greater life now in the physical and now in the spiritual. See, the Christian faith doesn't set up this false dichotomy that to be physically happy means you have to be spiritually sad or to be physically sad makes you spiritually happy. There's no dichotomy there within the Christian faith. You see him say that it's grace to the neck. That's our physical being. But it's also life to the soul. Now, what does this mean? Well, what Proverbs tells us is that when we walk in the wisdom of God, our lives are sweeter. doesn't mean our circumstances are always better. But there is a joy and a satisfaction to life. It speaks about prolonged days. It speaks about safety. It does speak about prosperity. And it does speak about harmonious relationships, satisfaction at work, enjoyment of our sexuality. 
It speaks about those things. And it doesn't just speak about those things being for us, but also for others. You know, the two expressions in Proverbs are the tree of life and the fountain of life. So it kind of has this understanding that when you walk in the path of God's wisdom, then your life is going to be better, but the tree of life or the fountain of life seems to have a spillover effect to others, that there's a joy for everybody related to us, that when you're satisfied and happy in God, that's going to have this, this kind of heating effect for others around you. It's a very good thing. And the marks of this path of life, here's how you know if you're on the path of life, you don't know it because you're raising dead people and you don't know it because you're cleansing the leper and you're healing the demonized. You know it because when you get angry at somebody, you're led to repent and reconcile and restore that relationship. And all of a sudden there's that sweetness of a reconciled relationship. Or that you walk in a sexuality that is right and it's holy. And there's a deep joy, and we talked about this, had a whole sermon on the depth and the profundity of joy when it's in the context of that covenantal faithfulness. And God wants us to have that joy, as opposed to the guilt that comes from when we kind of smear ourselves and, and ruin ourselves and pornography and the like. There's a joy, there's a satisfaction to walking rightly with our spouse or with our words. Instead of giving vent to our anger and blasting somebody out of the water with our words, that we speak in a way that's upbuilding and encouraging. And, and they're built up and we're built up and there's a satisfaction and joy to that. There's a happiness to it. Our lives are better. They're better. They're happier. We're not dealing with guilt and condemnation and frustration and bitterness and broken relationships that we just leave as a wake of disaster but we're actually using our words, or work, that we go to work, and we're doing it for the glory of God, and we're doing it well, and people are satisfied because we're considering them first rather than just my financial end, and we're happy over that. People are happy with us. So what he's saying is that when you walk in the wisdom of God, life is sweeter. And what it is, is it makes you more human. It, 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 as you walk in the wisdom of God, you begin to look more and more like God. You know, theologians will tell us that the only fully human being was Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ walked in a perfect manner in accordance with the image of God. Only Jesus was fully human. But as we walk in the wisdom of God, and that's what I think Paul's getting at in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we're being transformed from glory to glory, that we're becoming more and more human as God designed us to be. Of course, it's going to end, this life ends, but it ends sweetly. Now, in Proverbs, there's not a lot about eternal life, but let me give you a few verses that might encourage you. In 4.18, it says, the path of the righteous, that is, when you're walking in this path of wisdom, is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. I've got to believe that Solomon intended us to see in that that kind of moving through life, it gets brighter and brighter. And then when we see him face to face, there's a fullness of the day, that bright shining sun. Or we see in 1228, in the path of righteousness is life. And in its pathway, there is no death. Now, we know there's a physical death, but there's no final death. Or in 1432, the wicked is overthrown through his evil doing, but the righteous, the righteous finds refuge in his death. Think about that, a city of refuge. So we're aging out, we're approaching death, and yet there'll be a refuge for us. There'll be a place of safety, a place of well-being. What's he speaking about? We're going to be with God. So we have this path of death, this path of folly, foolishness, sin that leads to death. We have this path of wisdom, 
walking in the wisdom of God that leads to life. That's what we have cast before us. That's what the Father's speaking to the Son about. We have the path of, of folly that leads to a dehumanizing of us. I mean, I mean I, we've seen people, and we have the expression, that when they walk in such sin and such brokenness, what do we say? We say they're like animals. In other words, we even admit it. They're not human anymore. They're animals is what they are. But when you walk in life, you're walking truly as a human that God intended. And that's what this father wants for his son. So if you're not a Christian here, and you're thinking about this, and you're like, I do want that life. Maybe you're looking at your life right now, and you do have just these littered conflicts, these unresolved issues. You keep explaining why you have these things, and they're never your fault. And you just have this kind of train wreck behind you. And you say, I want this life. Well, I want to tell you that Proverbs is not a book of morality. It's not a cause-effect book. If you do this, you get this. If you, it's kind of a quid pro quo. If you do it, you get this. It isn't that way. See, Proverbs cannot just be walked in as a book of quips and axioms to life. You cannot do it. See, this is the message of the Christian faith, is that Jesus has come to do what we cannot do. So the joy in 1611 that Nick read at the beginning of the service, that he says, you've made known to me the paths of life in your presence. That's what we're speaking about here. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Jesus has come so that we could return to God and define this life both now and later. A, a joy in life that isn't touched by cancer, it's not threatened by war, changing the economy, that, that is untouchable by the things of this world. Now, it doesn't mean, again, that our circumstances are always perfect, but there's a profound foundation of joy and satisfaction and contentment in life because of Christ. And that's what Christ has come to do. In fact, he says in John 10.10, 10, he says, I've, had, I've come to bring life and to bring it to the full. It's the same language. Or in John 14, 6, he says that I'm the way and the truth. So I'm the way, I'm the path, I'm the truth, the true path, and I'm the life. Same language we're using in Proverbs. No one comes to the Father but by me. So for the non-Christian here, this is what we as Christians say is conversion. We say that we're no longer on the path of death, but we're going to by faith move and follow Christ by faith, leading us to the path of life, leading us to pleasures forevermore. But, but for the Christian here, how do you walk on this path of life? Are you on it? Do you see the mark so that when you, when you sin, you're led to confession by the prompting of the Spirit? I mean, are you working for the glory of God? Are you walking in a marital faithfulness with your sexuality? Are you trying to use your words for the building up of others? And when you don't, you repent and seek, forgi seek forgiveness and reconciliation? Here's what he says in in 1923, this is for the Christian now to walk on the path of life. In 1923, he says, the fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. I mean, to me, when I read that, it sounds very inviting. The fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. So it's the fear of the Lord. Now, we've talked about this, I think, just about every week. The fear of the Lord, what is it? It leads to life and rest, satisfaction. So the fear of the Lord is this. 
The fear of the Lord is not horror and it's not fright. It's not fear as in trembling. I've just seen a ghost and I'm startled. It isn't that. The fear of the Lord has to do with worship. It has to do with a recognition of kind of the jaw-dropping look on God. So if you were an Old Testament saint, for example, and you were to hear the fear of the Lord, you you might look back, as I mentioned last week, you might look back to the Exodus. They were slaves in Egypt, and God, because he is merciful and powerful, delivers them from slavery and brings them to sonship. So they were a people who didn't deserve anything, and yet they were given everything. And that kind of jaw-dropping reverence over his power, but this affection toward him because of his kindness. So it isn't just this fear of just sheer power, but there's an affectionate reverence because God's moved with kindness towards us. He's kind of called us forward. He is, he is lovely. Or as in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he's not safe, but he's good. He's very good. Now, for the New Testament saint, we look back to the greater exodus, the cross. We look back and we see in the cross that we were slaves to ourselves. We were slaves to sin, and yet now he's made us sons and daughters. Why? Because he's gracious. He's kind. He's just called us forward. It's that jaw-dropping sort of affectionate reverence for God. So walking in this fear of the Lord is worship. It's beholding God in all of his glory and looking at him and saying how powerful and how glorious he is. And what wells up in us is an affection for him that now we want to walk in fear. We don't want to walk in trembling. We want to walk in joy-filled obedience. Now, that was for the Old Testament saint. For us, we have Christ. You know, Paul speaks about Christ being our wisdom. In fact, Jesus speaks about being our wisdom. Let me quote you from Jesus' words in Matthew 12. He says, The queen of the south will rise up at judgment. The queen of the south being the queen of Sheba. She will rise up at the judgment day with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She came to hear the Proverbs from the writer's own mouth. And something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders. They are looking at him as a nobody, just a rebel rabbi is all he was. And he's saying, he's saying, no, they, she came from the south to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Someone greater than Solomon is here. In Jesus, he is our wisdom in 1 Corinthians 1.31 and Colossians 2.3. That all the wisdom of Solomon is embodied in Christ. And so in Christ now, full of the wisdom of God, dies for our sins, draws us to the Father, now we'll be forever walking in the fear of the Lord. We'll forever be overwhelmed with him. This is what leads us on the path of life. It's a beholding of Christ, and it's a beholding of him forever. Now, let me warn you, though, because many of us speak about beholding Christ, and this is from John Owen back in the 17th century, he said this, he said, no man shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight hereafter who does not in some measure behold it by faith here in this world. Grace is a necessary preparation for the glory and faith for sight. He says, persons are not disposed hereby. It says, persons not disposed hereby unto it. In other words, people that aren't drawn to behold the glory of God cannot desire it. 
whatever they pretend. They only deceive their own souls in supposing so that they do. Most men will say with confidence, living and dying, that they desire to be with Christ and to behold his glory, but they can give no reason why they should desire any such thing, only that they think somewhat that it is better than to be in the evil condition. So he says, the pretended desires of many to behold the glory of Christ in heaven, who have no view of it by faith while here in this world, are nothing but self-deceived. Oh, to behold the glory of Christ, herein will I live, herein will I die. Here is where I will dwell in my thoughts and my affections until all things here below become as dead and deformed things and no longer in any way will call out for my affections. You see this growing transformation by beholding Christ where the lusts and the lure of this world fade before the glory that we're going to see face to face. That's what it is to live on the path of life. So let me, pr- let me begin us in prayer. We have this prayer time, uh, and the, the prayer time really is for you to give word to the word that you've just heard. And, and we're thinking corporately. So uh, if you do pray, I would ask you to pray very briefly that others may pray and that you would pray loudly. Let me begin and then an elder will close us in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy in this word. I pray, Lord, that for those that are on the path of death, that your spirit would bring conviction leading to repentance and faith. For those on the path of life, would you grant them grace to continue to behold Christ with clarity of vision. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.